Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. It is that time again from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she learned about social justice and injustice growing up in the Deep South, where she studied at Jackson State University and learned about civil rights organizing, among other things. And in fact, it helped launch her career as a highly regarded labor leader and her relatively new position now as a political consultant helping to steer Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. We're excited to have LaFonza Butler here in the house. But first, but first Marisa, we got some stuff to go through. We got to talk right? about Gavin. Our gallivanting Always. Governor Gavin. Oh, look Newsom. at that alliteration. Okay. There we go. He was in El Salvador having pupusa, I think, and talking with folks down there trying to understand the migrant situation. I hope he situation. had pupusas. He did, okay, I believe. Good. Somebody Thank tweeted God. it. Somebody tweeted it. Um, down there for four days, first trip overseas. Well, I guess not overseas, typically, you know, out technically of out of country, out of the borders. Um, you know, heard heard about life down there. And, you know, there was, there was some criticism that, you know, why didn't he go to Mexico? Some. Why didn't he go to Mexico first? You know, like Jerry did. Um, but he did go to Mexico, actually, in uh, in November. But, you know, I think one thing about this governor, and you can certainly criticize uh you know, things that he has done so far, but he, he learns by seeing things and by, by seeing things in person. And, you know, you've seen that throughout, you know, the first few months where he'd go somewhere to see things. I think that's, you know, partly a part of his dyslexia. He likes to actually, rather than mm. read about something, he likes to experiencing it, experience it. And, uh, you know, he came back and, you know, he's yeah. back back in Sacramento now. Yeah, I mean, I think the criticisms are twofold. One is, is this just sort of like, you know, sticking it to Trump, doing this for political reasons? And the other is that we do have a lot of really pressing problems here in California that he obviously needs to help tackle. Um, and I think more broadly, and we talked about this with his chief of staff, the question of like, where is this administration focused? What are their priorities? You know, and, yeah. and I think that it's early yet, so it's yeah. not entirely fair to say like to, to to judge how they've been doing on yeah. a lot of those questions, but yeah, but I think the other piece of it though too is, did you really have to go down to El Salvador to know why people want to get out of there? I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. well known it's drug violence and lack of jobs and opportunity, but really fear for their lives. Uh, so I think that was part of the part yeah. of the criticism. To me, as well. that's like the least 
sort of interesting criticism, right? Because obviously- Sure, my criticism is the least interesting one. <laughs> no, but just because obviously it's always different when you see something firsthand and yeah. talk to people. Absolutely. We know that as journalists, right? Yeah, Otherwise, we would just true. sit behind our desks all day and call people, which we, we, we did We did that of. today. I well, speak for yourself. Uh-huh. Um, no. But there was, you know, we were talking about how people are feeling about uh, the new governor. There were actually, there was a new poll out this week from Quinnipiac- that's how you say it. Quinnipiac. You, you can say it. I'll, I'll uh, stick with Pete Buttigieg. Uh, That's my like win of the year. Yeah. And uh, his <laughs> approval rating in that poll, and you know, polls are momentary fleeting things, but uh, 40% approval, 40, 33%. Uh, so on the upside, but not uh, not a huge approval rating for someone who's relatively new. One of the Shockingly, interesting... he's doing better among Democrats yeah, than Republicans. Yeah, it's like Republicans. 7% <laughs> approval among Republicans. But the interesting thing is independent voters in that poll, no, uh, no party preference voters, 31% approval versus 41% disapproval. You know, uh, we were talking earlier, maybe the independent voters, there could be there could be more of them who are former Republicans, you know, leaving the party because of uh, mm-hmm. the current president. We don't know that. <laughs> Everyone we get on the show who we think is a Republican, <laughs> like our <laughs> guest last week. Oh, no, I re-registered. Oh, uh, yeah, not anymore. Yeah, Amory Schubert. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then there's also, I guess, I don't know if it's good news for him, but the, his move on the death penalty, that was also asked in the poll. Uh, the reprieve that he gave, the temporary halt to executions, kind of split right down the middle. I think it was like 46, 47. Yeah, but interestingly, um, just like another poll we saw recently, more voters did say that they oppose the death penalty, prefer life in prison than do. So I think, you know, from his perspective, probably, and, and we've talked to people around him about this, you know, he has made a sort of political habit of going out and sort of sticking his neck out on issues where the he might not he might be a little ahead of the electorate and i think they would point to this to say well look people are kind of moving in this direction um you know, again, he's not on the ballot anytime soon. So he kind of has some ability to do those sorts sure. of things. Yeah. Um but yeah, i think, you know, these types of polls, i mean approval ratings are never or rarely um you know, over 50 percent in the high 60s. I mean, if you see Jerry Brown, I think he had he had one little honeymoon phase where everybody really loved him, mostly because they hated the legislature so much, mm. <laughs> which is the other thing about these things. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I think something for him to watch and, and definitely. Interesting, though, you know, we talked about we talked to uh, Anne-Marie Schubert, the D.A. of Sacramento last week. And then this week, in spite of all this stuff we were just talking about, they're going to seek the death penalty on the mm. Golden State Killer. Uh, so not surprising, not surprising. But, uh, you know, it, I think you will continue to see the number of um, death sentences go down, you know, as that has that's been happening for a long time. I think what Newsom did will probably accelerate that. Another big story this week and still very much unfolding, Marisa, one you've been on top of, along with Lisa Pickoff-White here at KQED uh, and Suki Lewis, I guess we should say, um, PG&E, uh, the uh, question of its solvency, it's in bankruptcy. Study came out this week uh, looking at what would happen if sort of the status quo, if things don't change, if there isn't reform. Study by a UC Berkeley energy expert uh, showing that electricity rates could skyrocket about 50% overnight. What, what did you make? That was actually a report that was requested by the yeah, Newsom yeah. administration. And so I make so. that that was politics. I mean, it's not untrue. And as somebody who's been covering this probably too far in the weeds, um, Scott might argue. Uh, <laughs> There's a dandelion in your ear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's not su- surprising. I mean, you know, as much as there's not a lot of love lost for PG&E right now, it, 
in their service area or in Sacramento. The truth is that these devastating wildfires, the sort of lingering questions over how much utilities will have to pay for the damages, has really hurt their standing on Wall Street. Um, and unfortunately for us ratepayers, like when you know the bond ratings agencies say these guys are junk status, that means the borrowing costs go up, and who pays for that? We do. Yeah. So, well, and it's also worth remembering, as I'm sure everyone in Sacramento does, that uh, you know electricity, like or utilities generally, like healthcare, affects everyone. And yeah. you, we saw what happened with the brownouts, and back in the early 2000s, uh, led to Gray Davis getting recalled. Part part of the reason why. So you know these are big issues that uh, you want to get right, and sometimes it's hard to do that. Yeah, and I think that you know. This week is going to be a, a sort of interesting turning point for Newsom. Um, on Friday, he's expected to announce uh, the sort of outcome of the 60-day strike team he tasked with coming up with the report. Um, I'm hearing that it will not come with any sort of concrete recommendations from the governor's office, which I think lawmakers were looking for, but rather will sort of lay out the problem and possible solutions. Um which from a political standpoint is kind of interesting. It's a little squishy. It's not the governor taking leadership and saying th- these are the steps we need to take. On the other hand, this is a tough issue, of we- as we've alluded to, and not just around the utility question and who pays for it, but also around questions of local control and prevention and environmental review. And this is a complicated issue, and it's probably best to have some hearings and some you know talk about it rather than saying, I want to do this. Let's learn, learn as much as we right. can before we make a final decision. All right. We... Uh, One last thing quickly on the Quinnipiac poll. There was also a question about presidential politics. Uh, Joe Biden, despite his, you know, criticisms about his invading people's space, was at 26 percent in California, followed by Bernie Sanders at 18 and right behind uh, with uh, Kamala Harris at 17 percent. We're going to talk to our guest about that race in just a moment. So we're going to take a short break right now. And when we come back, our conversation with labor leader turned political consultant LaFonza Butler listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're thrilled to have with us today a woman 
who until recently was a top labor leader in California. LaFonza Butler is now a partner at the high-profile consulting firm that's running Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. LaFonza Butler, thank you so much for coming in. Good to see you. You've Thanks been, for having me. And it's, for sitting here listening to us. It's awesome. It's, <laughs> Listen it's to us, great. Gab. It's great. It's great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell us, first of all, like what are you doing with Kamala Harris? What do you? What, what's your role in the campaign? Uh, well, my title is uh, senior strategist, senior advisor, um, and so I advise, I strategize. <laughs> what was your advice today? Yeah, what, what kind of advice are you offering? Um, work really, really hard. Um, spend a lot of time with folks in Iowa. Uh, get to know them, their issues, and their pets. It's National Pet Day, so she spent a lot of time uh, talking with uh, talking with uh, Iowa voters uh, today and headed back to D.C. So. Oh, my God. There's like a day for everything. Let's just say that, right? Like it was National Sibling Day this weekend. Anyway. Um, well, you know, this is, as you know, a very crowded field and only getting more crowded by the moment. What are you guys like focusing on? I know she's in Iowa, but it seems like sort of the common wisdom is that her path lies through South Carolina. Um uh, you know, like, and, and California is her home state. Like, what, how do you balance all those things at this stage in the campaign? You, I think, you know, what she is sort of uh, laid out for the campaign really is a set of values, um, a value set for the country. It is clear in sort of how she uh, introduced herself at the launch in Oakland, talking about a cam- building a campaign for the people. Um, and, um, laying out that set of values, building a team that represents um, the best of the political talent in a country, but also the best of um, what we have to offer in representing her value set. And Can then ask, moving. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, just the for the people thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is her campaign slogan. She was a former prosecutor. So you walk into court, say for the people. Was that her idea? Like who came up with that? I think it was a mishmash of different people, honestly. I think it's really smart. I got to give my partner, Sean Clegg, a lot of uh, our creative credit. Um, but a lot of the... So the, Sean came up with it. No, I, I'm going to get LaFonza in trouble. <laughs> One thing you and Kamala Harris have in common is uh, she went to Howard University, you went to Jackson State, uh, both part of the historically black colleges and university systems. Have you... When you talk about your experiences in at those schools, like what do you, what do you talk about? How, how what kind of bond is there there? You know, because of that experience. So for me, and and I think that the senator would say the same. For me, it was just the richness of of what the university had to offer. It was yes, predominantly uh, black students um, steeped in a really really deep culture of civil rights. So I had the opportunity to have professors who were SNCC organizers, who had spent uh, Freedom Summer in jail in, Mac- in Macomb, Mississippi. I had the opportunity to be a part of the Fannie Lou Hamer Law Society. Uh, and so it really did frame how I thought about social justice and was the beginning of my socialization uh, for what I would do and could do with the rest of my life. And and I think that the senator experienced a similar ex- um a set of uh, a, a similar environment uh, at Howard, and it's an incredibly life-changing and very influential experience. She went to Howard from California. You sure. went to Jackson State from Mississippi, with, mm-hmm. where you grew up. You know, what was any thoughts about the differences there about going to school in your home state versus yeah, coming across country? Yeah, because it's just a couple country. hours from where you grew up, right? It's about an hour and a half yeah. from uh, where I from where I grew up. And look, you know, California is America's melting pot. 
uh, and to go from, I couldn't imagine what it was like for her going from America's melting pot <laughs> to Chocolate City uh, in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Uh, and so, it, but, but I know for me, um, again, sort of being enveloped in that kind of culture, helping to help helping me to understand uh, where my ancestry came from and what it was like really uh, for those professors to fight and, and, you know, dare I say, lay down their lives uh, for my own freedom uh, was incredibly influential to the choices Did that I made. Did you get to know John Lewis yeah. there? I didn't. I get. I got to know folks. Couple like, years between you. Guys. <laughs> well, as a teacher, no, not as a, te- not as a student, <laughs> as a teacher. I got. I got to know some of the lesser known folks in the civil rights movement. My, the chair of my department, political science department, was a woman named Mary D. Coleman. Uh, she was a lawyer, and she worked on the um, Ayers case, which was a big deal oh, yeah. for historically black colleges uh, and um, federal funding uh, and equalizing the funding for for historically black colleges. And so that's the kind of sort of um, lesser known names that really had an incredible impact. So we just mentioned you grew up in Magnolia, Mississippi, mm-hmm. right? So a pretty tiny place, I believe. How do you say it down there? Magnolia. Is that Magnolia. how you say it? Oh, okay. I thought there was going to be like... A big brawl there. No. There's no twang. No, no, yeah. Really? Okay. My bad. Um, so you're the youngest of three kids. I mean, I mean, what was your childhood like? And and it sounds like you had somewhat of a political awakening in college, but I'm curious if that was something that was part of kind of your family life growing up too at all. You know, it wasn't. My 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 family was pretty basic. Um my mom worked really hard. My dad um, died when I was 16 years old. He had heart disease. Um, by the time he passed away, he'd had six heart attacks. He oh, had wow. a stroke. Um, so he had had a, a uh, he'd had a heart transplant. Um, oh, wow. From got a new heart from an 18 year old who died in a motorcycle accident. Mm-hmm. And so my life was really lived uh, through the eyes of a caregiver. My mother was my father's caregiver in the last years of of his life and um, having to understand what families every day go through um, when it re- when it comes to issues like of health care. Well, and seeing your mom as a caregiver, and, you, know, you went on later in life to work for the union, SEIU, which has in-home care providers and nursing home workers. I mean, was that an inspiration for you? Look, my my mother's story really was uh, the precursor to my professional career. My, she, not only was she did she work as a in-home caregiver for my father. She worked the 11 to 7 shift at a nursing home as a CNA. She also wow. worked as a uh, as an armed security guard when we lived in New Orleans uh, at some of the most dangerous projects uh, in the city. And uh, she is an incredible woman who just showed me the strength of what it took to put your family on your back and do everything you can uh, to make more opportunities for your kids. And so did it um, have uh, inspired me to work for SEIU? Sort of. Um, sort of. I would say it inspired me to think about um, how my life was bigger than my own. Did you, I mean, growing up, it sounds like, obviously, your family was working class. Did you feel poor? Like, was that something you were aware of as a kid? I wasn't. You know, I, I felt so richly loved um, and poured into. Mm-hmm. Um, I had teachers who cared about me. I had neighbors who looked after me. Um, I had, you know, every friends, you know, that we just sort of shared stories. So I didn't, yes, we were, you know, in hindsight now, I realized right. I mean, we, I were, we were poor, right? And so, but, yeah. but no, I, I, I always felt like I knew where my next meal was going to come from. Mm-hmm. Did it mean that my mom 
um, was on food stamps sometimes? Absolutely. So I know what those choices are like for working moms. And I think some of that stuff is what really inspired me to continue to work so hard for the women that I worked for at SEIU. Just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is political consultant LaFonza Butler. And before we were before the show started, we were chatting and because you, you kind of glossed over you. You were a labor leader. You were the president of SEIU, and now you're a political consultant. Um, and while we were chatting, you said you went from, I asked you what the difference was, and you said, well, you went from a position of authority to a position of influence. What do you, what did you mean by that? Look, the, there are 360,000 uh, working women and men in the state of California who are caregivers who trusted me with their dues money, with their resources, with their the political capital that they had earned um, in, in their fight for uh, social and economic justice. And they gave me the opportunity to be a voice of authority on their behalf on issues that uh, they felt like needed to be addressed in their lives, in the lives of their uh, families and communities. And, and um, going from a place where you are the decision maker uh, in um, partnership with the member leaders and the staff team to actually being in a position where you have to um, use the influence of the principal for whom you work uh, to get things done. And you have to think differently about how you build consensus across the organization or the campaign um, to make sure that the values of the candidate um, are being lived out up and down the organization. It really is more about the sort of um, soft skills of yeah. of, of influence Managing that I, up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, do you? But I mean, I've always thought, like, as somebody as a journalist who you know, my life's work is like asking hard questions to people in power. You were on the outside for a long time, pushing people in power to do things. Like, is it hard sometimes? Do you ever worry about like running your mouth or, or pushing back too hard? Or is it? it you know, <laughs> it it is. I I it's it's a challenge. I have to think more about it. Honestly, I you know my relationship with Senator Harris uh, started about ten years ago when she was running for attorney general. And there are not a lot of labor unions in L.A. who were willing to endorse her because uh, she was Steve running Cooley against, against Steve yeah. Cooley uh, in L.A. That and so was a nasty it, race, it, too. It was. And so we, we sort of uh, came into each other's uh, lives as peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and having to adjust yeah. uh, is, 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 has been an interesting adjustment. But I, I can't think of anyone anyone else that I would make that kind of a change for. So you've been in this new position for since January. Sure. And I would imagine you went from a place, you know, being president of SEIU, to, which has a fair amount of structure, to a place where, I mean, campaigns are just crazy, right? I mean, it's only just beginning. You're laughing. So, like, what's the, how do you navigate that difference? <laughs> you draw a lot of boxes on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> just to make yourself just feel better. Just <laughs> This is like to make myself believe that there is uh, that there's structure. No, look, um, Senator Harris, you know, she was the attorney general. She was the D.A. Um, She is a woman of structure and um, an an organization in a a lot of ways. And so being able to sort of work with her incredible uh, team that really has been put together. Juan Rodriguez, our campaign manager, has done a really, really good job recruiting the top talent across the country. And but, you know, it's a struggle. It's a it's a it's a it's a change. It's a shift. It is got to be really uh, nimble on your feet. It is. It is. But it's so worth it. It is really, really worth it. 
Well, I want to talk, though, a little bit more about your time at SEIU because you really influenced and and most of our listeners would not have any idea of this, but some of the biggest sort of wins for not just labor, but I think you guys would say working people of the past decade. Um, I know that, you know, you were really involved when Jerry Brown first got elected in the whole Prop 30 fight, which was basically labor had come forward with a millionaire's tax, a a far more sort of expansive um, tax on wealthy people and you were, I think, at the table cutting the deal to go with Jerry Brown's a little more regressive uh, idea, which included sales tax and income tax hikes. Um, and then also later on, when uh, you guys wanted to go to the ballot to raise the minimum wage, uh, you cut a deal with with the governor to make sure that that came through the legislature. Can you just talk a little bit about like those sorts of negotiations and like, how do you walk into an office with someone like Jerry Brown and there's and, no one and, like Jerry and, Brown. Yeah. And, and open those conversations. Um, Cause you guys had a pretty big leverage over them, right? You're like, we're going to the ballot. We have all these members. We have this money. In, in addition to the greatness of, of, of our, of our governor, um, he was he also had a really good team. And so I it was the intimidation for me was less going into a room and talking with Jerry Brown. It was more pre conversation going into the room <laughs> and and doing negotiations with Nancy McFadden. Right. And Dana. Uh, and Nancy McFadden um, taught me so much about I mean, and we were often on opposite sides uh, in a lot of position in a lot of our positions. What did she but teach you? She she taught me the grace of uh, leadership. Uh, Nancy never led from a place of haughtiness, um, but she always led from a place of humility. She always uh, wanted to find ways, uh, find places of common ground. Um, she always put the people of California first. Uh, and, and so it just sort of kept me grounded in the fact that we were not enemies, that we were not, frankly, even on opposite sides. Right. We had different opinions, um, but we had the same destination. Do you think that that, like, part of that with someone in that position, too, is that, like, for Nancy, I think, and, you know, I covered her for a long time, she wanted to do the best job she could do for her principal, right? And so, like, carrying that out is different than coming in with your sort of personal mission that you have going on in there. Like, I would assume that's helpful. And maybe you had a little of that, too, because you were speaking for all of your members, not just yourself. That, that's what I mean by, by the common destination. Uh, we were bo- both working for the people of California, um, she represented way more than I did. <laughs> um, but we all came into rooms of tension and disagreement and negotiation um, with Californians in mind and the best of Cali- for Californians. We had uh, Senator Holly Mitchell on a few weeks ago. And we, one of the things we talked with her about was you know, she's obviously a big advocate for criminal justice reform and young people. And we asked her, like, how, did, were there times when you had to educate the governor about some of these issues because he didn't have any personal contact or wasn't something he was focused on. Did, did you feel that way with uh, Jerry Brown in terms of labor issues? Working? Go- governor Brown has done more in like the last four years than I've done in my entire 40. So there are not a lot of issues that he has doesn't have a lot of experience with. My um, biggest point of education that I could remember with Governor Brown was really about the issue of home care. Uh, and talking with him about the importance of home care workers uh, in our state and the services that they were providing. And the governor actually had an experience uh, with a home care worker because his great aunt, um, who was um, dying, um, 
had a caregiver and found her caregiver on Craigslist. And he was like, well, it can't be that hard, LaFonza. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're like, well. Well, it's like, well, for you, Governor, yeah, for right. your family. Unlimited uh, resources. Right. Well, it, it, it's difficult, It's but it's more difficult for families who are having to play by the, by the, medic, the rules of Medicaid and uh, having to sort of find their way, right? So, you know, that was, I, I think, a, a, the biggest sort of opportunity that I found to educate Governor Brown. Mostly I was get, I was the one getting the education. So we we kind of have skipped around a little bit, but on, on your personal life, you do have a four-year-old daughter in I LA do. and a partner. I do. Um, and, and we talked about early coming out of the South, being African-American. What was it like coming out like with your family? And I don't know, has that been something that you feel like has really informed your career? No. Um it's an interesting question. No one's ever asked me that question. Um, but I will say, in reflection, you know, my mother was not only my father's caregiver, but the saint of our family. It was never uh, a question of acceptance hmm. um, for me, um, whether it was my mother or my two older brothers. Uh, it was all everything was really about how do we support one another to be the best that we can be, no matter what that is or what that looks like. And so while I have uh, incredible empathy and have friends who, whose families have rejected them based on uh, their sexuality, that was not my story and not my experience. And I'm so grateful um, for that. And, and it's also not my primary identity. Mm-hmm. Um, different than... Um, right, it took us 28 minutes to get there. <laughs> <laughs> different than others. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the South and, you know, every Sunday I was at Sunday school and church and I did vacation Bible study. And so um, I my life really was framed uh, around... Um, the golden rule. And um, and my mother really sort of made that an incredibly important part of, of how we saw not only ourselves, but saw other people in our communities. We have just a little bit less than a minute left, but uh, we know, I believe, uh, that you are turning 40 one month from today. Is that correct? It is. What does it mean Happy to birthday. you to be, you know, about to exit your 30s? Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's it's interesting. I uh, am. Ch- I came to California and I was 29 years old. Was elected president uh, of the largest, second largest local in the country at 30. Uh, I left the SEIU after 18 years uh, as I was 39, and and I really feel like turning 40 is an opportunity to write a new story, new um, to to really um, create uh, a different. Um, um, plot uh, in my life's in my life story, and hopefully, I send this message to other young folks that you don't have to be somewhere for forty years uh, doing the same thing. I in think order young to... people got that. Message. <laughs> <laughs> well, well you could end them... up in the White House, so right? Maybe help them write a country, a country story. Lafonza yeah. Butler, thank you so much thank for you, coming thank in. Thank you really so much for it. having me. You bet. Well, that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. For more of our politics coverage, you can subscribe to our podcast uh, newsletter. Uh, It'll be delivered every Tuesday in your inbox. That's right. You can find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's uh, leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. Find me on Twitter at mlagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's political breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next week from Los Angeles. 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.